Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. In every successful person, they've always had three qualities, hard work, vision, and courage. You take Bill Gates, anybody you like, they've all had the same three. Everybody has got something in them. It may not be academic, it could be sporting. If people are good at sciences, they're not good at arts, and everybody's made differently. So we've got to find out where is the light to get something working well. The two words that I dislike are if and maybe. When somebody says, well, maybe I can do this. If this could happen, come on, make a decision. Be old, even if it's a wrong one, make it. Don't sit on the fence. When somebody abstains from a vote, that's a vote of cowardice. Be strong. Welcome to the Elevate podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different especially for young girls, signifies. I am so very delighted to share my guest with all of you today, as this is a first for me, but a subject that I have been so keen to discuss, as it is unrivaled in its global popularity. I am, of course, speaking about football, or soccer, as many of my North American and Aussie listeners might call it. I can think of no one better or more qualified than this legendary figure, an inspiring ambassador, playing a crucial central role for the Premier League and international ambassador for the Football Association to speak with us today. He is the former co-owner and vice chairman of the Arsenal Football Club and the former vice chairman of the Football Association. During his time at the club, he was responsible for many vital football matters, taking an active role in many areas, including recruitment and was the man with the foresight for the appointment of the then little-known talent that is Arsene Wenger to the manager's job in 1996. My guest's success in recruiting Wenger as manager has ensured his legacy in the history of Arsenal and football. Together, they spent more than a decade transforming the club and helping it join the elite clubs of European football. Indeed, their relationship in running the club was so close and successful that they have been described by broadcasters as being the Lennon and McCartney of footy. During his reign, the club very impressively won the league five times, the FA Cup five times, the UEFA Cup Winners' Cup, the League Cup twice and the Community Shield five times, making a grand total of 18 prestigious trophies. He remained at the club till 2007, where he was also influential in the impeccable transformation of the Emirates into an all-seater stadium and was the president of the Arsenal ladies team, which has consistently been one of the best. Since then, my guest has been the recipient of the Queen's Honours list and awarded an MBE in 2018 for her services and also in the same year founded the Twinning Project. The project is a groundbreaking partnership between clubs and prisons, is backed by the UK government and all the nation's major football bodies. The scheme helps clubs deliver coaching, refereeing courses and other sporting qualifications to provide routes to paid employment for prisoners. Very kindly, he also spends much of his free time giving motivational speeches to schools and prisons in the UK and at football conferences globally. With this, I think we can all confidently say my guest, who really is in no need of introductions at all, as his legacy and work speak for themselves, is, of course, the great revolutionary David Dean. It is a massive honour to have him join the Elevate podcast and talk with me today about his successful journey and how he continues to work so hard to make the game such a success for others including young girls and women. A hugely warm welcome to you, David. Ramita, thank you for that such a flattering introduction. I couldn't have written better myself. Oh, That's wonderful. 
Well, it is really such an honor and I'm so grateful to have you here. Shall we get stuck in and find out all about your incredible journey? Go for it. <laughs> I hope you're all keeping well in London. I know you're just on the verge of coming out of some parts of lockdown. You all keeping okay, the family well? Yeah, thank you. I've been at my first vaccination of two weeks ago. So we're on the road. It's actually done remarkably well. Uh, I think 24, 24 million people have been vaccinated in England, which is a huge amount. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, really fantastic. Kudos to the UK for that. Um, like so many of my interviews, I always love to start with my guests speaking about them when they were younger. So I would love to know a little bit about David Dean as a young boy and what you were like as a student, how much football was a part of your life at that point and exactly when this passion to be involved in the sport was ignited. Oh, I, I, could, I could be talking to you all day about that, Romita. Uh, I came from a very modest background. My, uh, my both parents worked. Uh, I went to a grammar school, Orange Hill Grammar School, um, which was just a regular state school. I, I quite enjoyed school. And I think in, in a way, um, when I look back now, and that's why I'm on this charity circuit called Speakers for Schools, because as you rightly I go around delivering schools, uh, talks in schools around the country. And I think it's because perhaps when I, when I look back at my school days, I realise how important the education is. And uh, I'm so pleased that, uh, particularly French, that I listen to them. And even now, 60 years later, I still remember the name of my French master, Monsieur Franou. And I'm so pleased I listened to his lessons because, like, little did I know that one day I would be speaking to Arsene Wenger and Thierry Henry and Patrick Vieira and Manu Petit and Gilles Grimaldi and Remy Gard and and Robert Pires, right? And all the French guys, they couldn't speak any English. So uh, I took my A-levels. Um, I should have gone into to go into Leeds University, but as a matter of fact, I didn't because my my late brother at the time was building up a business and he wanted some help. And I decided actually to, to go into business. So I decided to have a commercial career rather than an academic career. I regret not going to university now because I think it should have been a part of my life and everybody, I know my kids have gone to university and wonderful time of your life. But these were different days. You know, my parents were working brother was just starting off and you know there wasn't any money in the family so um and then i really i went into uh, to the sugar business then and and later on got involved at arsenal which i can talk about a bit later but uh, and always loved football i mean i'd be playing three four times a week you know for my school for my county for a boys club on a sunday morning so i just loved football i started going to arsenal when i was about nine years of age my late uncle took me to my first game and I always tell people, you know, how did you become an Arsenal supporter? Well, well for all your, your listeners, Rami, you may have read it. There's a fantastic book by a wonderful author called Nick Hornby. It's called Fever Pitch. And you should read it or, or read the book. It, it, made, it was made into a film. It's a play as well. And that's everybody's story. You go to the ground the first time, you get smitten, you get taken in by the roar of the crowd, the smell of the grease paint, the, the camaraderie, the tribalism. And... That was it. I was hooked. I was an Arsenal fan. Little did I ever believe in my wildest dreams when I used to stand in the old Arsenal North Bank that one day I would actually be running the club. So that's a little bit of my, my upbringing. But it's absolutely fascinating. So you, you've been an Arsenal supporter from the age of nine. And who were your biggest role models at that point? Were there footballers or were there other people, your teachers? Oh, you know, undoubtedly. Um, well, obviously, the, the first thing always is, are your parents because, you know, they give you the support need and the encouragement. Uh, certainly some of my teachers, and I still remember their names today, as I said. Uh, and also, I think my, my particularly my, my football teacher, because I, I loved football and he was helping me. And, you know, my club and friends, you know, you build it. It's a great bonding in any sport, whether it's football, tennis, hockey, snooker, whatever, whatever sport you're playing, there's always a bonding because of the people you're playing with and against. So there is something there which is very special. You know, these are friends you make for life at school very often. I've still got some of my friends today that I grew up with that I, I was at school with. We still correspond, believe it or not. Amazing. Um, tell me your funny story about French and speaking to all your footballers. <laughs> so th this is a, absolutely this story. Take it's about a 
wonderful French player that he brought in called Patrick Vieira. He was Arsene Wenger's first signing. He came in from a, he was a French guy, but he was actually playing at AC Milan. We brought him in and he couldn't speak a word of English. And it was up to me and my better A-level French to make sure he settled down. He had a car, he had a house, he had a mobile phone, he had an English teacher as well. And before the games, I would always go down to the dressing room and I'd shake the boys' hands, wish them good luck for the game. And after about two weeks, I went into the dressing room. I saw Patrick and I said, uh, Patrick, est-ce que tu peux dire quelque chose en anglais? Can you speak a few words in English? He said, oui, Monsieur Ding. Yes, Mr. Ding. Est-ce que tu peux dire? What can you say? He looked at me and he said, Tottenham Archie. <laughs> uh, no offence to any Tottenham fans out there, but... <laughs> I said, I said, man, man, you think Patrick said, fantastic, Patrick. He did this. Who told you that? So Ray Parler was giving an English lesson. Brilliant. Well, I mean, there's so many lessons in that. Kids, if you're if you're despising your French lessons at the moment, stick with them. You never know when you're going to need them. <laughs> I always say to children, like, listen to your teachers. You never know. That's money in the bank. Your knowledge is a knowledge bank. Don't don't write. You're wasting your time because you're not. That's such an invaluable reminder, really. And I think they're all little crumbs that you don't know where they're going to lead and where your path might take you. So, yeah, definitely. Another point on that, Ramita, is that I was given the great honour in 2010 to be England's international president. We were bidding for the World Cup. We wanted to host the World Cup in 2018. So I had to literally be wanted to get votes from around the world. I must have been to nearly 200 countries going around trying to canvass for votes. I never worked so hard in all my life and we only got two votes. Oh, but there you are. Oh, but hard work is never wasted. I promise you that because I look at your success and I think, goodness, you know, the relationships you've built, the people you've inspired has been wonderful. And I think that's one of the th questions I wanted to ask you about because you looked at English football and you believed it was falling behind other European leagues. You felt that it was not embracing a forward-looking plan to improve, and you believed, maybe instinctively, that Arsene Wenger was the man to help push Arsenal forward, embracing new methods to achieve this. It's incredible insight and foresight from your end. I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about what it is that you saw in him that could drive this change. And I wonder if you could share what you think it takes to make a good manager, because the reason I'm interested in this question, apart from obviously all the wonderful insight you're going to offer to me from the football perspective, but many professionals I speak to tell me that parents of teens and tweens shouldn't be looking at their children at that stage of their development with the parental lens, but more of a assistant managerial or consultant lens. And I wonder if there's any parallel tips between parents who might be listening to this so that your sort of insights on what a good manager makes could help them with parenting and raising their own teens. Well, okay, you've got two questions there. So let's take the first upbringing Arson. I met Arson in January the 1st, 1989, totally by chance. He was just visiting our old Highbury. I happened to meet him while he was there. He was passing through just for one night. And um, I said to him, I, I met him on a cocktail, actually, my, my wife, was, these were the days when women were not allowed in the main boardroom, which we used to host. But, so she got word to me that the manager of Monaco was in, was in the cocktail lounge. So I went through, introduced myself to him. And um, I said, how long are you here for? He said, well, I'm just overnight. I've come in from, I've actually been to Turkey. I'm coming overnight. I'm going back to Monaco. He was manager of Monaco at the time. He said, I'm going to be going back there tomorrow morning. So I said, um, what are you doing tonight? He said, he said nothing. So I said, well, my wife and I, we're going to a friend's house for dinner. Would you like to join us? His next answer changed all our lives. He said, I'd love to. And that dinner that we had together at a friend's house, my friend was in show business. I never forget. He was a drummer with a pop group called The Marmalade. So after dinner, being in show business, we started to play charades. You know, is it a book? Is it a film? Is it a play? And, uh, and Arson didn't speak very good English at the time. And I said to him in French, you know, do you want to, um, do you want to, play, do you want to play charades? He said, okay. Five minutes later, he's acting out A Midsummer Night's Dream. I'm thinking, you know, this guy's a bit special. You know, he speaks five languages. He's got an economics degree. All right, he's, uh, he's highly educate, educated. He's not your normal football ex-football player that's become a manager. He's far better than that. And I had this vision 
I could see arsen for arsenal. It was, I'm not spiritual, but literally that night I remember arsen for its destiny. It's going to happen one day. Well, as it happens, we, have, we were very happy with our manager, we had a manager called George Graham at the time. In fact, we were about to win the league in spectacular session at that, that time in 1989 on the 26th of May when we won it at Anfield against all odds. We won it 2-0. Nobody, nobody thought we could do it. So we were happy with our manager at the time. But I became friendly with Arsene. I used to go. We used to go to Monaco often and he would, I, he would invite me. So uh, then when the time came, he became our manager. And then, as they say, the rest is history. Now, youngsters being developing. Well, the first thing, they, they, uh, you know, every parent thinks their kid is going to be the next Pelé or George Best or something. But the problem is very, very, very few actually meet at the top. You've got to be a supreme athlete. You've got to be extraordinarily talented to get right to the top. Nevertheless, the journey there can be interesting and fascinating. Youngsters have got talent. And I always say the same thing. Like, there's only to be a good player, practice, practice, and more practice. And you've got to be disciplined. And I tell when I'm motivating youngsters at school, I always say the same thing. In every successful person, Ramita, that I've ever met in my life, they've always had three qualities. Hard work, vision, and courage. To be successful, you're going to need, you take Bill Gates, you take Jeff Bezos, anybody you like. They've all had the same three. Hard work, you won't get anywhere in life unless you work hard. You've got to want to know where you want to get to, and you've got to have courage, that determination to do it. You've got to work at it. So for any to be a professional boy or girl wanting to be a professional player, you've just got to work at it continually, keep your first touch going. It's all about practice and getting better at your sport. Whether you're a footballer, tennis player, hockey player, whatever you want to, whatever sport you want to do, keep working at it. And keep looking at videos of better players, see what they're doing, learn from others. None of us have got the exclusivity on progress. We can all learn from somebody else. I don't think you've got all the answers because you haven't. And yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's true. It's true. We, we can all keep learning from each other. So that's really inspiring and really fantastic way of looking at what we want from our children and how we want them to look at their, their visions and dreams. What about using a managerial or a consultant's approach to parenting how do you think what do you think about that and what do you think you know you listed a couple of qualities about arson that were something that really spoke to you and resonated with you about how special he was but what are your views on on how what makes good parenting and helping those parents who who do think their children might be george best or adele or the next big pop star how do we advise our, our teens for that well, the, the first thing, a parent has got a role. And in one word, it's to support. And they are not professional coaches. They have to leave it. And it's not easy for, for parents, because often, and I've seen it before, so many youngsters' careers sometimes get interrupted because of the negative, funny enough, influence the parent has, trying to drive them forward too quickly, telling them what to do. Leave that to the professional. Leave that to the coach. He's a qualified coach. He or she's a qualified coach. You've got to leave the. You've got to leave it to those people to guide the career. All a parent can do is support and encourage them to go to coaching, right? To keep fit, to eat the right food, to get your body in the right shape. But leave the physical coaching side to the professional. And I see parents on touchline. You know, very often shout, "Oh, get stuck in. Do this. Get in there." not playing the right position. They're, they're micromanaging the kid playing. They're not the manager. They have not got qualification. They're doing more harm to the youngster's career than anybody. Mm, yeah, it's such a good reminder. I've, we've all been there, haven't we, with the certain parents? In fact, the FA have got a, a book on guidelines, you know, parents' guidelines, what to do and what not to do, believe it or not, these days. So that, that's true. There is, there is a line in the sand that you don't cross. Make sure the youngster is fit and in good, the best condition and let the coach get on and make the player the best they can be. I love that. I love that. That That is going to be a, a motto that I think we should all have somewhere in our houses put up for all parents. You're such a great believer in youth development and the development of women's football. 
how are you driving this? I'm going to quote you. Uh, you mentioned that you felt football was really a sleeping giant and had a long way to go. After seeing how the Americans operated their support, particularly American football and baseball and basketball, I felt we were light years behind. We had so much more to give as an attraction. So do you think, David, then, that we can draw similar parallels to women's football, which has historically been a much more accepted sport in America and other countries over the UK? Um, and now going back to the mid-1990s, we did not have a women's team. And because my wife is American, I used to go over to the States and I used to see how their football was developing, particularly seeing their NFL and they made such an event of it. It was wonderful. You know, we, we could learn a lot from their marketing. But I also noticed that the women's football was getting better and more and more prominent. So I came back to the Arsenal board one day and I had the temerity to suggest that we should form an Arsenal women's team. And, and there was silence. They looked, he said, is this a publicity stunt? I, I said, no, this is real. We want to do it. They're doing it in America. We should do it. And to the board's great credit, because it needed to be subsidized, had to be funded. Somebody had to pay for the traveling, the kit, right? The coaching. It wasn't, it wasn't as if it was going to generate any money. It wasn't. It was a loss leader. But uh, to the board's credit, we agreed that we should form an Arsenal women's team. And from, from one team today, there's eight Arsenal women's team going from eight years old right up to the seniors. And one of the greatest pleasures I've had for many, many years, two years ago, the 20, in 2019, was the Women's World Cup, which was in France. I was there, I saw about, I was there for five weeks. I saw 30 games. I even took a couple of my grandchildren from Italy, came over, watched some of the games. And it was a fantastic tournament. Virtually every ground was full. The games went out in around the world on television. In fact, one broadcaster came up to me after the end of the final, you know, and obviously knowing that I've been a bit of a, a pioneer for women's football. And they said, well, what did you think of the tournament? And I used these words. I said, the train has left the station and it's gathering speed. Isn't that so empowering? And so really what struck me there is that sometimes when you want to see some change you just have to be brave enough to ask for it R ramita believe it from a standing start it is the fastest growing sport in england women's football is the fastest growing over one million women and girls now play football it is so exciting right and it's getting more and more bigger and bigger and they're getting better and better you know okay so america one and we've got a good women's team these days it's coming it's you know we're developing really well so it's an exciting time for women's football. So girls should start thinking about really trying, starting to play football. Quite a part, because everybody thinks a man's game. It's nonsense, you know. Ramita is a statistic for you, and it never used to be like this. In the 1980s, even before, football, professional football, was a man's game. You didn't see any women. Today, 25%, one in four people, attendees, going to Premier League games are female. That shows you the change and it's growing. Amazing. As far be it from us to not let that continue in its stride. It sounds like an amazing thing. And, you know, how lucky and grateful are we females for pioneers like you that believe in, in giving girls these opportunities. I, and it's great that we have so much greater momentum. Do you find that schools are doing enough to encourage girls football? Is there more of that happening? I mean, when I first moved to England, and that was obviously in the early 2000s, there was none of that. There was no girls playing football. If they were teased. Now it's part of the, totally opposite now, it's part of, part of the curriculum. Girls are getting encouraged to play football and you're, and you're seeing it in many, many schools now, more than ever before. The FA particularly have got a massive, a big women's division. FIFA have got a massive, and UEFA, got huge women divisions now, just concentrating on the development of the sport to make sure the facilities there, the coaches are there, the equipment is there. Oh, Why not? Fabulous. Fabulous. I loved reading about one of your mottos, which is that everyone makes mistakes. So don't let that be a reason to give up on them. This is a major principle that I've been working on to instill within the Elevate Mentorship Program. You're a strong advocate in giving people second chances. And I actively encourage students to make mistakes, but to learn from them. I think it's very beneficial and it's a skill for young people to develop, perhaps especially important for young girls and boys who feel they may have messed up and then they completely give up on themselves. Have you got any words of support to others in positions of influence to help bring these kids along? 
yeah, uh, you know, everybody deserves a second chance. Um, you know, we can talk about my work in prisons in a minute, but particularly when you're growing up, and nobody, nobody's graph goes in a straight line. Everybody has reversals. Everybody, you, you're a teacher, Romita. You see kids, sadly, they don't pass exams. You don't give up on them. Actually, you've got to give them more attention. It's the opposite, to make sure they can become a success because um, everybody has got something in them. And it, it, it may not be academic, it could be sporting. It could be, so people are good at sciences, they're not good at arts and everybody's made differently. So we've got to find out where is the light switch that you can switch on to get something working well? So I, I, I believe that there is some good in everybody. We've got, we've just, we've got to find it. Mm. Yeah, it's, that's our role really, isn't it? To help discover that for the children. In terms of giving people second chances and, and obviously learning from mistakes, what are the ways that you go into prisons and what, how do you speak to the people that you're working with? They must be emotionally scarred. There must be a lot of pain. I, I, I don't, you know, there's a lot of things to work through in terms of resilience. About eight or nine years ago, I started on this Speakers for Schools circuit going around, which is a charity going around schools around the country. So it hadn't been for COVID. I've, I've been up today at six o'clock in the morning going to King's Cross or Liverpool Street or somewhere to get a train to, I don't know, Leeds or Norwich or right to give a talk at either, either a school or a prison. So I was giving all these talks in schools and I thought to myself, I woke up one morning and I always get my best thoughts while shaving. So as I'm shaving, thinking, how can I drive the game forward today? And I'm thinking, what else can I do? I'm enjoying speaking to schools. I said, well, where else is there a captive audience? And the word captive stuck in my mind. I thought, prisons. I bet nobody's going to prisons giving motivational talks. The prisoners are probably bored out of their skulls. So <clears throat> I had a friend in the home office and I went to see him and I said, look, I'm doing these talks in schools. They're going rather well. What about taking them into prisons? He said, well, let me think about it. It took about eight months. And then they gave me a trial prisoner, HMP Rochester in Kent, Her Majesty's Prison in Rochester, Kent. And I went there. And um, as I'm giving this talk to the offenders, I've got four people in front of me with clipboards, judging, supervisors judging me. Well, I've been around the world giving talks for the FA, UEFA, FIFA, God knows who. Here are my highlight of my career, HMP Rochester, Kent Prison. I, I'm getting judged. I'm getting marked. So afterwards, one of the supervisors he said, Mr. Dean, we like what you're doing. Uh, we've got 117 prisons in England. Would you consider going around them? So before lockdown, believe it or not, Ramita, I have been in every single prison in England giving a talk. And whilst going around, I'm building up a market survey. What goes in in prison? Now, you see, and I always use this, Ramita, people think prisons are for punishment. I don't. Going to prison is the punishment where you lose your liberty, you lose your self-respect, you lose your self-esteem, you, you lose your job, you may even lose your partner, right? You're all-time low. Prison should be for rehabilitation. Let's find the good in that person to try to make them a better person when they come out because they are going to be walking around us in Chelsea or Knightsbridge or the, or the West End here in London. There'll be people who have been to prison. Right, they're going to be around us. So let's try and make them better people. And it's the same with students. If they're failing, let's try and make them a better person. How do we get them to be something that they in themselves can have some self-respect to do something positive? So that gave me the inspiration of forming the Twinning Project, because my background was football, of twinning a football club with its local prison, where they would put in coaches and referees to try and help the offenders to get a job when they come out that's critical oh that's left me so moved and emotional it's so admirable of you and i'm grateful that we've been able to share this inspirational idea that you know came out of you thinking about how you can make things better and i think that's a great question for all of us is what can we all do big or small in our day-to-day -to, -day, to just improve things a little bit better for somebody else and you don't know where it's going to lead i think that's a huge takeaway for even me i, I i'm totally moved by what you've just said I often tell my students this, that every January the 1st, when they wake up in the morning and they want a New Year's resolution, the first thing they should say to themselves, I'm going to do better than last year. They've got to give themselves the motivation. They're going to say, well, what did I do last year? You know what? 
going to do better this year. That's how progress is made. And that's what we should all be doing. And we all learn from each other. So we don't live on our laurels. Whatever we've done before, we want to go better one, one more time. No, you're a shining example of that. I think that's a remarkable message for adults, children, teens, or whoever might be listening to this. It speaks to all of us on every level, doesn't it? Because we can only do what we can, but as long as we keep measuring up and looking to others for inspiration, that's that's the way forward, I believe. I wanted to actually speak to you a little bit more. I know you mentioned earlier in the story that when you first met Arson, that there was separation between the women and the men and the women weren't even allowed into the boardroom. So really what I wanted to talk to you about was the transformation and the gender biases, how that's impacted the sport and whether you think that things are still not quite where they should be in terms of need for change. Yeah, it's been an evolution. We've seen it in our own lifetime. And uh, I, I remember when, the, when I got uh, onto the board at Arsenal in 1983, uh, the women were not allowed. They had what we called officially the ladies' room, where the ladies would congregate by themselves. And my, my, my wife came after we, we got home after my, my first experience in the boardroom. She came back and she said, I'm not coming anymore. I said, well, why not? She said, well, well, I'm not going to get stuck in that ladies' room talking about the, the price of washing up liquid or something. She says, I've, I've, come, I've come to be, to be with you. To, you know, isn't this a family sport? And, you know, those words rang true. If we want it to be a family sport, we've got to embrace the family. And, you know, slowly but surely, all the clubs, the cobwebs were blown away. And slowly but surely, each club suddenly started to invite the women into the boardrooms, women onto the board. Now, commonplace that there is a woman on the board. The likelihood is the FA, so according to press reports, are going to choose a, a woman to be the next chairman of the FA, chairperson of the FA, which you'll see. Wow. That is exciting. Was it quite a straightforward process? I know it took time, but were you met with resistance when you wanted to bring in these changes? You know, old habits die hard. People don't like change. Ramit, in my experience, people don't like change. I remember Treasury were going to change the, the, the pound note, the old pound note, to a little pound coin. People were marching Downing Street, but we said, it's a pound note, it's a pound note, we've got to keep the pound note. So we said, do you want a dirty piece of paper or do you have the little coin in your pocket? What do you prefer now? Oh, no, we'll have the coin. But of course, by the time, everybody was driving themselves mad, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, it's true. Change is hard, but I think with, speaking of change, you've been somebody, as you've been describing, you've always been at the forefront for many important changes in football, including all of the work that you're doing for women. But things in technology like the goal line technology or the vanishing foam. I would wonder if you could just talk to me about how these new initiatives were so important and why having continual innovation is something we should all remain passionate about. You need a screenshot of this. Oh, I really do. I do. <laughs> For those of you that can't see, because obviously I'm not having this, uh, David is holding up a very <laughs> amazing can of, I think, must be vanishing foam. I <laughs> love it. Love it. That's it. Can you see it? 9.1 fair play limit. Fair play limit. Yes. Let me tell you a little bit. I'm sorry to digress, but since you brought this up, part of technology, this is a lovely story. So, so this happened in 2010. I was on the World Cup bid, as I said, and I'm going around the world and I found myself in Argentina and I'm giving a talk to about 2,000 people in football because we wanted to get their he wanted to get the South American vote. And afterwards, a guy came up. A guy came up to me. He said, Mr. Dean, he said, you seem to know your way around football. Can I interest you in my product? I said, what do you do? He said, I'm in the paint business. I said, paint? What's paint do with football? He said, I've invented an invisible paint. It's called 9.15. I said, 9.15, what's that? He said, well, that's meters. That corresponds with your 10 yards. And he said, you know, when there's a free kick and a referee will march out 10 yards and he'll say, boys, stand there. And then they all encroach. They move forward. He said, well, this vanishing spray, you put a bit on the ground, right? It's like shaving cream. He can see where the, where the 9.15 is. So I said to him, Fernando, that's brilliant. Now, I live by a motto, which I think we mentioned before, Amita. I have a motto of my own, which I use every day of my life. 
my personal motto, which I'm going to pass to you now, free of, and all your listeners, my motto is the motto of the turtle. The motto of the turtle is you don't get anywhere unless you stick your neck out. I stuck my neck out for Fernando. I said, Fernando, give me some samples. And when I got back to England, the FA, UA for FIFA, anybody who listened to me today, every referee has got a can of this spray attached to their belt, which they use all the time during the game. So good old Fernando. I, and I still correspond with Fernando all the time. I, 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 I'm totally baffled and completely enamoured by what you've just told me. It speaks so much to your incredibly friendly personality as well that you will, uh, well, even today is, is a testament to that, you will sit down and talk to anyone <laughs> that wants to speak to you. And I just think that's just such a attractive and inspiring quality to have so wow lucky fernando to come across you yeah and well and because in a way it changed the game a little bit it helped took the area where there was cheating going on in the game and we stopped that. <laughs> yeah okay this is brilliant so innovation and and look, looking ahead and how we can constantly improve rightfully so then touching on exactly these points that you've just described you were described, and I'm going to quote you, as a visionary and a go-getter. I think we've just heard exactly why. But as Karen Brady, who's the vice chairman of West Ham United, mentions, you've always been socially progressive. Tell me about these traits in you and how you encourage others who wish to emulate some of these wonderful characteristics. So many young girls have this battle with insecurity and they don't feel that they've got what it takes or they don't have enough self-belief to be the go-getter that you are what do you think we can say to young girls who let this hold themselves back well the first thing i i, I often say to people and, and there's an apocryphal story where boy says to god what should i be in my life and god says kind and that's I've always remembered all my life that I've always tried to be kind to people. I've always tried to be helpful. Um, I've always tried to be cooperative. I'm, I try to listen rather than speak. I, you know, I, I both, obviously, you've got to do it as an equal measure, but you need to understand the other person. Be a good listener as well as a good speaker. You want to know the other person, have empathy, understand what you're talking to, be going out with some. You know all about yourself. But I don't know enough about you, Ramita. So if I was going out for a, a lunch or a dinner with you, I'd say, tell me about yourself, Ramita. Tell me what do you like? What are your hobbies? What do you do? I want to learn more about you. Be interested in the other. Always be interested in the other person. And also, big point, learn their name. I've been a big, big uh, uh, advocate. Always, I tell youngsters, learn people's names. It's so important. Remember them. Right? That will help. So you see them, and all of a sudden you see them six months later. Hi, Ramita, how are you? You feel good, I've remembered your name. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and so for, for youngsters, boys and girls, I always say this as well. I, I was asked a question before lockdown. I was in a school, and there was a Q&A session, and a youngster put their hand up, and they said, uh, can you give me some tips on going for an interview? And it was such a good question because all these youngsters, they're 16, 17, 18 years of age, they're all going to go for interviews soon, for apprenticeships, for jobs, maybe for whatever they're going to do. They'll have interviews for universities. So I said, well, this is what I look for in an interview. Number one, you have to be, when you go to an interview, be prepared for it. Right? Look good. I mean, look the best you can be. Don't look disheveled or right, a mess because that's, what, that's the image you're going to give. Your first impressions mean a lot. Always, always be on time. Punctuality is important, right? If, if you're late for me, you'll be late for somebody else. Always be on time. Always look in the eye, eye-to-eye -eye contact. Always a firm handshake, that you mean business. So, you know, little things like that. That's what I look for somebody when they come in. You know, they say you only get one chance to make a good first impression. Make it well. Give it your best shot. And that's what I to all youngsters today. Just, just that. Oh, I really hope that fills my listeners with gumption because it's really important, isn't it, to believe in yourself and, and go out there and present what you can and be your best self to everybody you meet whenever you meet them. And I love the fact that you say kindness because out of one of the superpowers that we work on in the mentorship program is all to do with kindness and how that can be mistaken as a weakness, but it actually is a massive superpower, isn't it, to be kind. 
And something else also I would mention, be decisive. I think that the, the two words that I really, I, I won't use the word hate, but I dislike in English language are if and maybe. When somebody says, well, maybe I could do this, or maybe I, maybe if, if this could happen, come on, make a decision, right? But bold, even if it's a wrong one, make it. Don't be, don't, don't sit on the fence. You know, when somebody abstains from a vote, that's a vote of cowardice. Take one paper or the other, right? Be strong. Mm. Yeah, conviction. Amazing. That's such a good quality. And take other people. You know, you need people around you. If you believe in something, try and try and get your, your force together. You mobilize your army. Yeah, that's Ruth Bader Ginsburg, isn't it? If you're going to lead, lead with so other people join you. It's it's definitely the way to do it. Yeah, I think that's amazing. Speaking of being a good leader, one of the other things that you've been great and, and wonderful, you know, has shown some great leadership with is founding the Kick It Out scheme and it's on a little bit more of a serious topic clearly and it's very relevant at the moment but i think it's been part of the work that you've done and i would love for you to share some more insight on that if you wouldn't mind well this is a wonderful story again this was well over must be nearly 25 years ago and it's a wonderful wonderful guy lord herman Oosley, really started it and uh, he invited me he chaired it uh, to be one of the founder members and it was at a little office. Uh, the FA got behind it as well. So they gave us a little room in Lancaster Gate to meet. And there were about 12 of us sitting down because, you know, racism was pretty ugly in the 80s. And uh, we decided that we were going to do something about it. We wanted to be proactive. And together we started something called Kick It Out, which is today it's gone on and you see it all the you know there's no room for racism campaign you know and i think actually we've done a great deal of work we made sure that in every football club's program there was a notice that racism would not be tolerated that anybody caught with racist or abusive language would be thrown out that their season removed it was zero tolerance we had right likewise on the field of play we wanted respect to each other all the players it's a universal game uh, in england you've got 70 percent of the players come from abroad huh, you know and arsene Wenger always says i don't look at the passport i look at the talent you know we're in a multicultural game it's amazing it and it's so prevalent isn't it across all areas of work life and sport it's in hugely beneficial to start teaching kids even when they're playing about those kinds of aspects how do you go about bringing that up with the youth clubs and things there is lots going on but it still hasn't been eradicated has it no and, and it really ramita you're an educationist it's it, it's got a it starts at home and it starts schools and it's all about education at home we are all creatures of our environment. We get brought up in it, right? If, it's, if it, it is condemned, and I mean condemned from the onset, at a home, the child's got half a chance, right? Get involved. And also to be at, at school, it's, got a, it's all about education, that it's, it, it's not part of our, it shouldn't be part of our society. Racism has got no part in society. I'll tell you a, a lovely story if we've got time. So in one of my talks, this was about two years ago, I was at a school, I remember, in South London, and we had a Q&A, and I was talking to 16-year-olds, and I never know what questions I'm going to get, mainly, obviously mainly about football, but one girl at 16, she puts up her hand and she says, Mr. Dean, she said, being black, do you think it would be more difficult for me to get a job? This is at 9.30 in the morning. And I can't say, I said, so immediately I said, well, what's your name? She says, Susie. I said, well, Susie, I'm thinking, let me tell you something personal. I'm Jewish. I have suffered from anti-Semitism. You're black, you may well suffer from racism. But you know what? That's only encouraged me to do better, to prove not am I equal, but I can be better than the rest. And you are, you're as equal. You're as good as anybody, if not better. That's what you've got to believe in. And you've got to make sure everybody else understands that. And that was my answer. Oh, well done. That's a difficult one to get right. But well, that's must have left her feeling extremely empowered and hopeful. That's the big thing, I think, is giving the children some hope and, and not to be so scared and worried about it. And as much as we're trying, we're not quite there yet. But you're absolutely right. These conversations, these interviews, 
people at schools and at home if we can continually have these conversations and encourage our children to see what's right, what's human and making a human connection with everybody. I think that's incredibly valuable and incredibly important. So I would love to know now, really, we're getting close to an hour and I know we don't have a huge amount of time, but I would love to know what your future visions for football might be, what you hope to see come next. What do you hope will keep elevating the game? Okay, well, uh, one thing we all have to acknowledge, and I'm delighted to say that football is such an important part of a lot of people's lives. You know, uh, if, if uh, I know uh, I used to be very friendly, sadly passed on, with the chairman of Liverpool Football Club, and family owned Littlewoods, which used to be football courts, and, and shop, shops as well, Littlewoods. And they said when their team lost, the productivity in their factories went down, right? Because people were on a Monday morning, they didn't have the spirit because they lost. The, the, the game means so much to so many people. Football today, boys and girls are playing more than ever before. And it is being seen by so many people. There's millions, billions, 1.4 billion people watch the Premier League programme around the world in 211 countries. That shows you we only started that literally uh, under 30 years ago. So it was in 1992 we the Premier League. So football is such a driver these days for, for television, for sponsorship, for fans. And I can only see it getting better and better because it is just a wonderful entertainment. And the problem now is that it is a family occasion. We can see it. We're getting more women going to the games. We're getting more youngsters going to the games. And as it develops, I can, I can only see it going from strength to strength. So I'm overall, I'm very positive about the game developing. And we've got, uh, obviously, my good friend, Arsene Wenger. He's, in, he's now got a wonderful job, the top job in world football. He is actually the head of global football development in, at FIFA. So he is responsible for is being developed in all the countries around the world. So overall, I, I'm very positive about the sport. It's a way of life, and I think um, I'm. Uh, we'll, we'll, it'll carry on for. Why shouldn't it carry on for ever and a day? Amazing, amazing, and I think your example of determination, your passion, your drive for seeing things get better in every aspect of development, not just sport, but personal growth is such a wonderful message for all Elevate listeners, but for just generally, it's, I've such a huge amount of respect for these qualities in you and I can see what you've created from it. I can see how you've established so much success with the wonderful qualities that make you you. I have to ask, are you and Arson still on speed dial with each other? Do you check in? Is it hard? I mean, what is your connection now? <laughs> Well, I, I did speak to him this morning. Uh, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> normally speak three times uh, times a week, and believe it or not, you'll be able. It'll, it'll take at least a, about a year and a half. I, I've actually decided to write a book. Have you? And I thought about it. You know, uh, I'm of the age now. If I don't do it now, when am I going to do it? And, and I've I've declined doing it for many many years. And I thought perhaps now that I've got to, firstly, because I can't go into the schools and the prisons at the moment, probably for the next three, four months. So I've got a little bit of time on my hands. I've decided I want another project and I'm actually going to devote it to, to writing a book. And much it will be about the motivation, about management, about leadership, obviously of Arsenal, but also the Premier League and about generally and the FA and global football, how I see it going. So uh, you'll have to be patient because it'll, it'll be at least a year and a half. It will come in. That's so exciting and i'm sorry i feel like i've had just had an exclusive have i really just been am i the first to know about this exciting project you probably are yeah there you go i feel i feel very very touched and honored to be able to share that you heard it here first on the elevate podcast there will be an inspirational book coming out and i promise it will be available on my website when it does come out as well i will make sure it goes up on there um and anything else that david's mentioned i know he mentioned a great book uh by nick hornby which i love i do think it's a brilliant thing anything else he's mentioned including websites that he might have recommendations for i'm happy to include in show notes at the bottom so please 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 do look at those when you download the podcast for anyone out there looking for more information david thank you for being here today I, I was excited before we had the interview. I feel 10,000 times more inspired and excited having spoken to you. 
Ramit, if I can just invite your audience, maybe they'd like to check out what I'm doing now. Make a note to this, please. Go onto the website, www.twinningproject, that's T-W-N-N-I-N-G project, all one word, dot org. That's www.twinningproject.org. And you will see a little 10-minute video of exactly what I have to be doing at the moment, one of my major projects that I'm doing, which uh, you'll see how, how it's developed. So it's a stage of my life. Absolutely so remarkable. You know, Ramita, we all go through stages of our lives. And one of my great mentors, sat tragically passed away in December, was a very famous football man called Jared Houye. And we used to talk literally every day, invariably about midnight. He was a late bird, so he would always be about midnight. We'd talk to him because he lived in France and we would, uh, we would speak. And he once said this to me, and it, it's resonated. And he said, you know, we all go through three stages in life. The first stage is our stage of education. Then we go through our years of success. We have the years of education. We have the years, what we call of success, where you're working up the ladder, you're working hard, right? And then after that, you have what we call the years of significance, when you want to try and leave something. And that's what I'm doing. I'm in my years of significance, where I really want to try and leave something and help others to learn perhaps from what I've done. I've done, I think, I think it's been correct believe me there's been a few mistakes but we have to learn from those so yeah it, it sort of it speaks so similarly to the indian philosophy which um if if we were lucky to live 100 to 100 let's just say we were all that you would divide your life into quarters so you spent the first 25 years just like you said educating yourself then you spend 25 to 50 developing your family and working hard to build a life for your kids and 50 to 75 when you start to think about how you give back and what you do. And then between 75 and 100, they say you meditate and you become, <laughs> you, go, you find your way back to God. Um, but <laughs> but <laughs> I think there's something in that about leaving something behind and what we can do to help those that are coming after us. And this is really my, my mission and my hope with the, with the project I've taken on recently. And my, my only message to everybody will be, be the best you can be and work at it. So there you go, Ramit. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for asking all those. No, thank you so much for, for coming on and thank you for inspiring us. And thank you for all the hard work that you're putting into all those in those. How lucky are those young people that get to listen to you in the schools? How lucky are those people that are getting the benefits of your mentorship through the prison? And yes, I will absolutely link that website onto the show notes so that people who are listening to this while they're walking or running or whatever, not to worry, I will be absolutely put into the show notes for you to reference when you download the podcast. So thank you, everyone. I hope you'll all take away what I have from this incredible conversation and share it with others. Thank you very much, Ramiz. I wish you every success and all your listeners too. Fascinating conversation and what a brilliant season three kickoff opening episode. I could not be more thrilled to have had his excellent David Dean on the podcast, sharing all of his fantastic insights from his wealth of experience and what it takes to do all the fabulous work and the achievements he's made up to date. He continues to inspire with all the fantastic work that he's doing. I urge all of you to take a look at the show notes for the link to the projects that he's working on now. There is something in that from all of us to learn. I really hope you will have enjoyed listening to this conversation as much as I did recording it. Please share it on. Whether you've got aspirations to be a footballer or not, I think there is a lot to learn from David. Thanks a lot, David, for being with us and inspiring us in such a wonderful manner. Until next time, thanks everyone for being here. See you soon.